the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Flight Lieutenant Suska Denham. Flight Lieutenant Suska Denham commissioned into the Royal Australian Air Force as a direct entry through Officers Training School in 2017. She joined as a security police officer and completed her initial employment training at the Defence Force School of Policing, Holsworthy Barracks. After posting to Number 1 Security Forces Squadron, RAAF Base Williamtown, Suska performed the role of Base Security Officer before transitioning to the Squadron Operations and Plans Officer in 2019. During this time, she completed a number of broadening qualifications, including a Diploma of Security Risk Management. Saska deployed on Exercise Talisman Sabre 2019 as the officer in charge Force Protection Flight Rockhampton. In 2020, she was posted to Number 2 Security Forces Squadron, RAAF Base Tyndall, as the officer in charge Security Flight Tyndall. This role has direct responsibility to the Regional Security Commander Northern Territory for the management of security forces encompassing Air Force security, military working dog handlers and security operations personnel. The military working dog capability, Air Force gap gear, protective security and governance and weapons training section. In 2021, Suska was selected as the aide-de-camp to the Air Commander Australia, Air Vice Marshal Vincent Avasi, followed by Air Vice Marshal Darren Goldie. Flight Lieutenant Denham deployed on Operation COVID Assist-19 as the Operations Officer for Joint Task Force 629. After completing her posting at Headquarters Air Command RAAF Base Glenbrook, Suska posted to the Joint Military Police Unit at the Executive Officer for Joint Military Police Station, Brisbane Gallipoli Barracks, Inogata. Flight Lieutenant Denham holds a Bachelor of Education Primary Honours Class 1 and prior to joining the Australian Defence Force was a teacher with the New South Wales Department of Education and Training. Whilst at university, she participated in a global exchange program teaching English as a second language in Kerala in India. Saskia, it's great to have your company. Thanks, Gareth. It's uh, great to be on the podcast. Now, listen, I've got to ask, you started out as a primary school teacher, is that right? I did, yeah. So I, um, I finished high school and I studied a Bachelor of Education at Charles Sturt University in Bathurst. Um, during that time, I thought about joining the Australian Defence Force. Both my grandparents on my father's side had served in the army. Um, and so I decided, well, maybe I'll use my education degree and become an education officer in the army. And uh, by the end of my degree, I was working full time as a primary school teacher and I'd totally forgotten about the ADF. <laughs> I had specialised in teaching primary school science and uh, working with kids with special needs um, and inclusive education and loving my, my time as a primary school teacher, yeah. When did you go to uh, Kerala in India to do English as a second language 
course, yeah. ESL? My third year of uh, my degree, there was an opportunity that came up through the University of uh, Global Exchange Program. And there were 10 uh, students on my course who were selected for that, myself being one of them. We flew over to Kerala, um, spent some time doing the touristy things, but also spending time within local primary schools teaching English as a second language. Are you multilingual? I'm not. I, I would love to be. Um, I can speak, I can dabble a little bit in different languages, but I wouldn't say I'm fluent in anything. Coincidentally, I'm also a former teacher. I was a secondary school teacher and I've taught at the university, but I've often wondered with an ESL teacher when they're going into another language, how it works. Because if you're teaching English as a second language in a school where the native language is French, German, Italian, mm. Hindi or whatever, how do you cope? How do you work it? Yeah, it was interesting, Gareth, because at the time we weren't fully qualified teachers. We were still uh, going through our training. So we'd, we'd had three years by that stage, a few different uh, practical experiences, but nothing internationally by any means. It was quite interesting, actually. We assumed that we were going into schools that couldn't speak English, whereas a lot of their English was actually better than ours, you know, because <laughs> they taught the formal English, whereas we in Australia, we, we tend to have slang or, or different euphemisms sure. and things like that. That. So they were actually a, a lot better off and a, a lot uh, more forward than we were. A lot of the students that we, we taught, you know, they had ambitions of being engineers and doctors and pilots and, and things that um, I guess the students I taught in Australia didn't have the same sort of career aspirations. And that was really eye-opening, that experience. So if they had uh, a formal English background, were they correcting your grammar, were they? I think they were being too polite. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Now, you're a primary school teacher. You're, you're changed a course you you thought about going into the defense forces what happened when did this decision suddenly oh i want to go back into the i want to go into the air force so it was probably in my second year of uh, full-time teaching and at the time the ADF or, or defence recruiting had a very big women in defence initiative or, or push to boost our recruitment numbers of women in in particular in non-traditional or, or combat sort of roles and mm -hmm. because I'd gone, gone through the initial DFR assessment process I was obviously on their distribution list and I, I kept receiving correspondence saying come and do your U session again or, or come and uh, speak with women who are serving in defence. So to be honest, it worked. I got bombarded with all this correspondence and one afternoon they were doing a women in defence session in Parramatta. It was a, a bowls evening where you could go and, and, and mingle with current serving ADF women and I I said to my mum at the time, right, you need to come along with me to this because um, you'll tell me whether it's worth it or not, whether I give up a career that I've just started and try something completely different or if I'm crazy even thinking about pursuing this idea. So we, we went along to that evening and we met current serving uh, Army, Navy and Air Force females from a range of different areas and musterings and specialisations. And to be honest with you, Gareth, I didn't quite click with the Army personnel that were there, but I really found an interest in the Air Force women and their experiences and what they'd done and just their overall attitude. How would you explain the difference to someone listening to you right now in, in how you found the RAAF personnel that you were dealing with? 
so I guess um, it was both my experiences and the experiences of my mum at the time who was also there with me. Incredibly approachable, the Air Force women that were there and their experiences in terms of their training, where they travelled, the friendships they'd built, where they'd posted. I really found a connection with that, whereas the women who were in the army, they were incredible women in their own right, but I just didn't resonate with their experiences or what they sure. I thought, you know, if I'm going to be an education officer, it's not really teaching within the ADF. I guess you could say it's much more about the training system. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to give up primary school teaching to go and do something like that. I'm going to do something completely different. And so I went back to DFR at the time and I said, I want to change my preferences from Army to Air Force and what do you have to offer? And at the time, they had what's called a training system as officer, I guess the equivalent of the Army Education Officer, but they weren't recruiting and it, it wasn't teaching. It was more about the training system. And I thought, no, I'm, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do something completely different. Mm -hmm. Security police officer was on the list and I thought, yeah, I've always had an interest in maybe not the security part, but the policing part. Why don't I give that a go? And three months later, Gareth, I was You're in. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any point in your life where you would have become a police officer? Forget the defence for a moment. Has that ever entered yeah. your head? It has definitely been something, I guess, you know, teaching, nursing, policing, being a paramedic, those sort of organisations sure. or qualifications sort of fall in a similar boat. So I've thought about all of them. Policing, I'd always would have loved to be sort of an educational liaison officer or working with juveniles in that space. So it's definitely something I thought of. I was always pushed in the teaching direction and to be honest, I loved my training and I, I got a full-time job straight away. So I, I felt quite comfortable in that space and had forgotten about the policing aspect. Yeah. But okay. I thought, well, military and policing, how about we put the two put together? Put the two together. <laughs> <laughs> now, it was at 2017 that you're in, is that the year? I did. I joined about halfway through 2017. Your training was initially done at Holsworthy? No, so I did my initial officer training at East Sale at the officer training school down there. That was about 16 and a half weeks of officer training. Once I'd completed that, I posted to RAF Base Williamtown to number one security forces squadron as the base security officer there. And then in February of the following year, that's when I went down to Holsworthy to conduct what we call our initial employment training. So specialist training to be a military police officer within the ADF. It's one area... Of all of the interviews we've had, it's one area that we've sadly not focused on. So for someone listening now who's not currently in the Australian Defence Force, I'd like to just you to take me through some of the training. I mean, I, I've read the list and it, it looks unbelievable. Operational safety skills training, military police ensemble, baton, OC spray, taser, etc. All those things. Firstly, where was that kind of training done? And can you just take us through what each of them meant? Yeah, definitely. So I guess when you think of a police officer in the civilian world, it's a similar capability within the military. So we need to be trained on safety skills. So, you know, how to work with potential people who are escalating a situation. We do get trained on utilising use of force. So there is a range of different things, including batons, cuffs, handcuffs, protective vests that we wear, ballistic and stab resistant vests are the new, new capability that's just come into the military police. We've now just been trained 
on what we call the conducted energy weapon, which is a, a taser. So all the capabilities of a, a modern police force we're getting within the, the ADF. When I first joined, though, we didn't have those capabilities. It was a baton, handcuffs and, and some spray and off you go and, and deal with a situation if you had to. Um, so that was all covered in the initial training. We obviously go through our, our weapons training. Does weapons training only require skill with a handgun or do you have to engage with a variety of weapons? Yeah, so in the initial training, uh, we all get trained on the style. That's a requirement for all ADF personnel. What's, what's a style? Uh, so that's our traditional weapon, I guess you could say, one that everybody is trained on. As a military police officer, and especially where I was initially posted within the security forces, we were trained on pistol, we were trained on larger weapon systems because of the combat roles that we were performing. Really interesting training, a skill set that I never thought that I would (laughs) get. Well, it certainly broadens your horizons. What about the training with dogs? How did that go and what was involved? Post my military police specific training down at the Defence Force School of Policing in Holsworthy, I was sent back to my first unit, which was, as I said, one set four in Williamtown. And as part of the base security role, I was essentially a flight commander for Air Force Police, Air Force Security, Air base protection, um, including full-time and gap year personnel. And part of that is the military working dog capability. And so as the flight commander, I guess you need to know the capability that you're working with. So at one sec four, I didn't get the opportunity, but when I posted a two sec four in the Northern Territory, it was often put ma'am into the bite suit and, and let her have a go of the dog bite, which was interesting and experience I don't think a lot of people would have. Tell us about that experience. I mean, I've, I've watched it on, on YouTube, the police training dogs and they the dog grabs on the arm and the arm comes up and the dog flies through the air, but the dog still hangs on. Yeah, exactly. So the personnel, the military working dog handlers are extremely well trained. They have either German Shepherds or Belgian Malinois or different breeds that we utilise specifically within the military. They're bred at RAF Base Ambly at the Security and Fire School or RAF SFS there at the breeding cell from a puppy. You know, they're trained with that handler from day one. They're very good at what they do. They spend every day training and and utilising that capability on our bases. In terms of your question, Gareth, about what is it like being bit by one of those? (laughs) By a German shepherd, yeah. We put on a uh, a, quite a large what we call a bite suit, a a large padded suit. We don't train in uniform because uniform is is that friendly force. We want want to make sure dogs can differentiate between the two and essentially it's a a simulated scenario of an intruder or someone who's wanting to cause harm or escalate the situation to the point where the use of force of a dog is required Mm. and that Uh, that that suit you put on is that pretty heavy obviously it would be i imagine it is very heavy and once you hit the ground it's very hard to get back up (laughs) okay well look the training obviously has to be thorough and no doubt it is the thing that i've got to ask i think it was two 2020, the Royal Australian Air Force became part of the Joint Military Police Unit. How does that work? Are you no longer in the RAAF? Who do you report to? Yeah, good question. No, we are definitely still in the RAF. What that means in terms of chain of command is in 2020, the Air Force Police component of the security forces, and this is a, a mustering that's gone through many iterations of changes over the years from, you know, SecPol to AFPOL to AFSEC. So in 20 2020, they decided to modernise the police force and create a standalone joint policing force. And what that meant is Army, Navy and Air Force personnel who were military police 
combined into the Joint Capabilities Group under the Joint Military Police Unit. So Army still kept a component of their battalion, so 1MP battalion, to support combat military police operations. Mm -hmm. The Navy still kept the coxswain part of their Navy Police coxswain, so whole ship coordination. And Air Force Police, we gave all of our policing capability through to the Joint Military Police Unit. From a SEC Polo perspective, so the officer category, we bounce in and out. We can be both within in the security space and we can also be working within the policing space. So, for example, my current role is as the executive officer for the Joint Military Police Station here in Brisbane, mm -hmm. Gallipoli Barracks, Rough Base Ambly and a, a quite a large area of operation, pretty much half of Queensland up to Gladstone and down to Tweed Heads. So, that's my current role, but my previous roles have been in security and my future roles could be in security as well. They're all part of the Joint. I just want to get it clear for someone who's not in the Defence Force. All right. Now, we have, uh, we have a joint military police unit. Does that mean in that unit there are members of Navy, Army and Air Force working together? Our commanding officer is a Navy commander. Our officer commanding is an Army major. Myself, I'm a Flight Lieutenant RAF member. And then in the, the troop category, we have Army, Navy and Air Force. So it's completely mixed. Do you have a different uniform or do you have the same uniform? We've all got our... Um, service uniforms. We just work in a collaborative space. Given that Army, Navy and Air Force is our defence capability and all of them are members of an armed unit, therefore watch out. What is the purpose <laughs> of the military police? We're there to not only police the force, so, you know, enforce discipline, law enforcement, conduct investigations, but we're also there to support the force as well. That can be both domestically and internationally as well. So think about what a normal civilian police workforce would do, but ours is only for the military, if that makes sense. We, we have liaison with civilian agencies, Australian Federal Police, Queensland Police or whatever state territory you're in, but our policing powers and jurisdictions are for ADF members. Again, for the non-defence person watching movies, you see military police engaged in different situations on movies and there's always a, a fear, oh, the, the, the MPs are here. Is that same feeling in evidence in any way, shape or form? Yeah, look, everybody's got their own perceptions. Some people view it as, you know, the traffic cops. Other people have had, I guess, deeper experiences with us. We have two main areas. We have general duties policing and we have investigations. So I guess think about it, Gareth, for the general public as your beat cops or your general duty cops and mm -hmm. then your detectives or your investigators who, who deal with, I guess, the more serious or sensitive issues. Without being specific, are you able to generalise as to what some of those issues might engage? Yeah, so we've got the Defence Force Discipline Act. So that has a, a variety of different things, you know, from being absent from work or, or doing things that inherent to the military are, are different to being just a civilian. You know, we have different rules and, and regulations that we need to abide by. So that's why the military police are there to, to police that and, and to investigate those sorts of instances. 2019, thereabouts, Operation Talonsman Sabre, were you involved in that or did you have a role in that? Uh, uh, 
uh, I was posted to Williamtown at the time and in consultation between the SEC force and the contingency response units, we were stood up to support Exercise Talisman Sabre, which is a, a multi-agency joint exercise up in Townsville. And we were also in Rockhampton, Shoalwater Bay and all across pretty much the top of the Queensland area. Uh, we also had some support down in Rath Bay Sambly, but my re- main role was at Rockhampton Airport and I was essentially the officer in charge of the security forces that were providing protection to the assets at, in and out of Rockhampton mm. and Shoalwater Bay. Talisman Sabre and of course Sabre is the demon repelling cavalry sword of course where the Sabre comes from in that name Talisman Sabre. What is Operation Talisman? All throughout the year we've got a, a calendar of exercises and operations that the ADF participate in whether they participate just as a joint force within Australia or whether they participate with international partners. So Talisman Sabre is the largest exercise that we do with the United States. Uh, it has a land component, a sea component and an air component uh, and it goes for approximately six to eight weeks. So it's quite a large exercise mostly focusing on amphibious landings and that integration between Army, Navy, Air Force, the US Navy, the US Marines, the US Air Force etc. Is this to hone the ability to us to work together and understand our networks and so there's no paucity of communication across the thing so we understand working with the United States what it's like and they understand what it's like working with us. It's preparing and and training as we would fight in a a normal situation you know we raise we train and we sustain as best as we can so that when Gareth the day does come if we have to project either air power sea power or land power that we can do that as well with our coalition partners. And in your specific role was there an interoperability between the United States MPs and you or was it? Yeah, there was. I guess I've had a unique opportunity in different exercises and operations to work with our partners and, yeah, a great professional development experience. Tell us about them in terms of what they do as opposed to what we do. Are we identical or are there things of areas of difference? Definitely not identical. We each have our own nuances and and culture specific to our our forces. But I guess when you think of either A, the security forces or B, the military police, we do have a lot of similarities. Really, we're all going towards a common goal, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about your role in the security planning for the introduction of a new combat facility at Williamtown, if you are able to talk about that. Uh, my experience as the base security officer at both RAF Base Williamtown and up in Tyndall, Tyndall, Tyndall the yeah. Territory, um, we went through a period of time where we were introducing or expecting the first arrival of our F-35 air combat aircraft. As part of that, we needed to upgrade our, our facilities and also have a modernisation of our security forces as well in the process of that. So I was involved in the the establishment of the new air combat facilities in both locations, which included certifying the facilities to make sure they were up to standard for this new capability that was coming to us. And as part of that, I got to experience the landing and the arrival of our first F-35 aircraft in both locations, which was an incredible experience. And I also got to be there for the farewell of our Hornet, which was also a once in a lifetime. Uh, Just out of interest, you see the arrival of this F-35 and you see the departure of the F-35. A 18 Hornet. Is there somewhere inside of you, oh, gee, I'd like to fly? Uh, look, <laughs> it's a, a question that I, I guess I have asked myself every day. You are completely right. I'm in the Air Force and I do, I guess, what you would call a, a ground-based role or a combat support role. So definitely, Gareth, I've thought my passion is a C-17. I'm not necessarily a, a fighter pilot. I could watch the Globemaster every day. In fact, being posted to Ambly at the moment, 
I do, which is fantastic. I got the opportunity to have a flight in a Hornet before they were retired. When really? I, I did, yeah. An incredible experience before I posted out of there. We got to conduct a mission, so it was more than just a, a joyride to make me feel sick in the back seat. Um, <laughs> I spent nearly two hours uh, in the aircraft flying above the territory and conducting a, a mission with the Navy uh, above Darwin. So an incredible experience. I wasn't sick, which was fantastic. Well, that, that, that is awesome. <laughs> and just in terms of a comment you made a moment ago about you're on the ground, don't ever, ever, ever undervalue or underestimate your importance because that F-35 would not fly if there wasn't a ground crew looking after it. And that ground crew would not feel safe unless there was a military police officer close by and involved in security. So everyone, everyone within the forces, whether it's Army, Air Force or Navy, has a role, an important role, and their individual role makes the whole competent and effective. So I just pick up yeah. on what you said. Everybody has a, a role within the greater cog in the wheel, and by all means, I love what I do, but there's always that part when you are in the Air Force where you do have that passion for air power and aircraft, yeah. just like everybody else. I love planes, and I love fighter planes, and the F-30, when I, when is it? been at Williamtown when the F-35s, or then it was the F-18s, were taking off. Inside of my stomach, I thought, oh, I'd love to be in that plane. I'd love to be in that plane. So I envy your trip in the plane. Well, what about your aide-de-camp with Air Vice Marshal of RC? How did that come about? Was that a security thing or what? That was a very interesting process. It's not a job or a role that I thought that I would ever do. I knew what it was and it was something that I admired, but I just didn't think I was the person for it. And I was posted to Tinder at the time and received a phone call from my then commanding officer of 2SEC4 saying, hey, Suska, you know, the Air Vice Marshal has gone out to the FEG commanders. So Commander CSG was my FEG commander at the time and said that he would like some nominations of people that we thought could perform the role of his uh, aide-de-camp. CO 2SEC4 said, I'm, I'm going to nominate you. And I thought, wow, well, this is going to go nowhere. But <laughs> I was enjoying my time in Tindall at the time. I loved the position. I loved the people I was working with and, you know, travelling that part of the world. About four weeks later, I hadn't heard anything. So I, I thought I was right in my assumption it wasn't going anywhere. And I got a phone call from my career manager saying, look, you've been presented to the board and you've actually been successful. You've got a phone interview tomorrow with the staff officer and the current aide de camp to see if you're successful to a face-to-face -face interview mm -hmm. with Air Vice Marshal of RC. And so I conducted the online interview from Tyndall. And I guess you could probably tell because I got the job. Yeah, I was successful. You did get the Funny about that. Yeah. Um, I was meant to fly down to Headquarters Air Command, Rough Place, Glenbrook. But at the time, the Hawkesbury area and the Richmond area was going through severe flooding. I wasn't able to make it down there at the time. So it was rescheduled down in Canberra, where I met my soon-to-be boss, Air Vice Marshal Avasi, and his wonderful wife, Donna, and the rest of the team, um, the executive team that supported mm. him. Two weeks later, it was pack my bags in Tyndall and, and make my way to Rough Place, Glenbrook to commence my tenure supporting him. What do you have to do? Yeah, so I guess ADC role, it's completely multifaceted. The main responsibility is service to the principal or, or service to, you know, Air Vice Marshal Avasi at the time, or Joe, as many people know him, or Vinny, to essentially make his life run smooth. You know, he's commanding over 12,000 operational personnel within the Air Force. He's got many things to think about and meetings to attend and decisions to make. The last thing he needs to be thinking about is where he needs to be, what he needs to be wearing, and who he's talking to at the 
time. So my role as the ADC is to coordinate all those things for him to make sure that he's appropriately aware of where he's going, what he needs to be wearing, what he's reading, what he's writing, who he's speaking with. I organised the base visits. Um, so we went all over Australia to all the different bases. As the air commander, it's an incredibly, I guess, unique role as an mm. ADC because we do a lot of travel because he is the operational commander. So we got to do both domestically, internationally. It was affected partly with COVID at the time. So we got to spend about four weeks in Hawaii, which was incredible. And then when we came home post two weeks of quarantine, Sydney had gone into its biggest lockdown at the time. So that sort of put a, a hold on the international engagements part of the role. Sure. We also went to Singapore. So we did the Singapore Air Show and lots of uh, international engagements. And we also, with the new Air Commander, did a trip to New Zealand and did some international engagements there. Is that Darren Goldie? It is, yeah. So I guess was in a unique position in that I experienced the handover of two air commanders and the transition of command. And so I served with, with both of them. How do you as an individual cope with, I mean, they're different people, different kinds of personalities, different requests, demands, etc. How do you as the individual meld yourself into the new relationship? It's not just about me as an individual, it's about the whole team. So the principal is supported by a whole executive office, staff officers, aide-de-camp, executive assistants, senior events coordinators, chefs. You know, there's lots of people working in the background to get their life sorted and and to support the principal. In terms of an individual, um, as the ADC, it was often just him and I. Everywhere we went, we would also be supported by the Air Command Warrant Officer and the the personal assistant or, or driver, depending on what event. Uh, sure. we were going to. So you're right, Gareth, you need to have a very um, great relationship, which <laughs> I was incredibly lucky to have with, with both of them. But everybody's different, so you just the team just supports whoever they're serving at the time. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I admire most about, well, let's stay with the Royal Australian Air Force. That, that team quality was just so important. Did your training in the military police assist you in any way, shape or form as an ADC? I think twofold, Gareth, um, not only my experience within the military, but my experience as a teacher, you know, organisation, being able to deal with a, a range of different people within the community. You know, <coughs> you are being exposed to things in that position that you would never be able to be exposed to in your normal day-to-day role. It's a privilege to be there. You know, I was once told by a, a previous ADC when I was getting some advice of what to do, and he said, it's seeing the view from the top without having to climb the mountain. You're getting to be there next to a two-star or three-star officer and being in meetings where you're incredibly privileged to hear what you do. And so I guess as an MP, I've always known the right thing to say or the right thing to do and professionalism. So it definitely did help me in that stead. Yeah, that's that's awesome. COVID Assist 19, uh, the Joint Task Force 629. Tell us about that. Yeah, so at the time, as I said, we, we just got back from an international engagement trip in Hawaii and Sydney went into its largest lockdown at the time, which ended up spreading pretty much nationwide. The boss had gone back to Canberra. I'd gone back home just for a couple of days of reset and the staff also had gone back to his home location as well and we got separated and that was it, borders locked down and and we couldn't actually support him in his capacity as air commander at the time. A lot of events were being cancelled. Most of the ADF was working from home and or supporting COVID assists. So, 
I offered my support to go and help because I couldn't really perform my role as ADC for those few weeks. And uh, I was put in an operations officer role down at the headquarters at Holsworthy. So it was like going back five years to my initial <laughs> training and staying in the same uh, living in accommodation and living that experience again. But to be honest with you, Gareth, I learned a lot. I got to work with New South Wales Police and a lot of other agencies. We went out to Food Bank and we packed hampers. We went to Homebush Stadium. We set up the vaccination hubs. Some incredible experiences helping the community, which, you know, was great. Not only me as an ADC, but I was going back to my sort of military police yeah, background. Yeah. What's it like, just specifically during the COVID situation, when you're needing to work with other agencies outside the military, like the New South Wales Police Force or emergency services, fire, ambulance, whatever? How does that happen so seamlessly as it seemed to do? It obviously happens at the much higher strategic level between Chief of the Defence Force, the Secretary, Emergency Management Australia and those agencies. And then it um, filters down to personnel through task orders and defence aid to civil community requests. And, and there's a whole bunch of different mechanisms. But essentially, you know, I was put on a, a deployment order and said, you are going to go to this position and help this area. And I think as an ADF, we have had experience over the years working with those agencies. It has become a lot more... Um, streamlined and, and pretty seamless as we go through now. You know, we've had floods, bushfires, COVID, aged care assist, you name it. So I think we're very used to operating together now. What is the value in all those things you just mentioned of having the ADF on, on call, as it were, other than we have a police force, we have a fire department, both rural and, and commercial and uh, government, uh, we have an ambulance service, they're all staff, we've got the SES, etc. Why is it necessary to bring in the ADF? Yeah, so we were just another supporting agency, Gareth. You know, we were, we were at a time where all the agencies were incredibly under the pump, you could say, you know, and so we were just that extra support to bolster that workforce. And it's very different, you know, when you see a military member walking through the streets in Australia, we get approached in a very different way. People often come up and talk to us and ask us questions and are very grateful that we are there to support. I think we are trained from day one as well that we're here to serve. Going out to places like the food bank where we were packing hampers for people and then delivering to them, them to their homes, you know, it's incredibly rewarding work. All the ADF members were, were grateful to be there. I take your point about seeing a, a person in uniform, doesn't matter what the uniform is, Army, Navy or Air Force, there is a an automatic feeling of comfort and, and, and admiration when you see that person in that uniform. It's something, I think, rather special in Australia and to some extent, I would imagine, in the United States and also in the United Kingdom, but most definitely in Australia. We have a, we have a very good relationship with our ADF. We do, yeah. And I think uh, over the years, it's only gotten better through our support to communities, as I said, bushfires, floods, COVID. You're now with a joint military police unit at Gallipoli Barracks at Enogara. What's that like and what do you have to do? Yeah, so I finished my tenure as ADC back in May this year and I was posted back to what we would call my core specialisation. So I'm the executive officer for the Joint Military Police Station Brisbane. Um, so I'm responsible for, I guess, the management of our military police personnel, so Army, Navy and Air Force, both general duties and investigators who work for the Joint Military Police Unit in particular in the Brisbane area of operation. Pretty important role. It is a very important role and to be honest, we 
with you, Gareth. I'm thoroughly enjoying being back at what we would call operational level uh, <laughs> and getting back on the tools and contributing to the capability. This is the first time that I've actually been within the Joint Military Police Unit. It stood up at tw- in 2020 and I was posted to the Security Forces Squadron at the time. So I'm really enjoying just... Um, delving into the technical aspect of being a military police officer. Uh, Good on you, good on you. And did you ever buy yourself a German Shepherd? No, uh, we did the typical thing when we moved to the Territory. We we bought a full drive and we got a border collie. Oh, oh, you do have a dog? We do. If you had to pick four or five things in your military career that you cherish as great memories, what kinds of things might they be? I guess the first one, Gareth, is the friendships that I've made. You know, the military has a very unique ability to bring people together, you know, from the moment you join to the different postings and roles that you do. So I'm incredibly grateful to have friends that I made at officer training school, to have friends that I've made at all different postings. So if I was to look back and go, what's my favourite thing? It's the connections that I've made. A flight in a Hornet was an incredible experience that I don't think many people get to have. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that. The travel, the ADF has provided me the opportunity to go all around Australia and in my last role as ADC both also travel internationally. That has been an incredible experience. Saskia, um, you are an, a marvellous ambassador for the military, particularly the Royal Australian Air Force, which is dear to my heart, given that my father was also in the Air Force. You've given me a whole new insight into an aspect of the military that I wasn't really aware of other than the name, military police. The role is a very important one, and without it, I think the Royal Australian Air Force, Army and Navy would be deficient uh, if you, you and your fellow officers weren't there so congratulations on that and I cut you off you were going to say one other important aspect that you remember well if I could pinpoint one other in the last six years it would be being able to be involved in the hundred years of of Air Force. That was an incredible moment to be an ADC in in that year, to work alongside the Air Commander and and to have the privilege to be involved in all the different celebrations and and events that were involved in that 100 years of Air Force. So once again, something that I don't think many other people would get to experience. So definitely a bucket list item there, Gary. What a great an important moment to thank you on and conclude an interview of great interest for me on. Saskia, I really have to say I've enjoyed this most definitely and you are to be congratulated for what you do. The primary school that you were at has lost a great teacher, I would think, in what you've now since achieved. So congratulations on what you do. You've made the Royal Australian Air Force a better place to be and part of Australia. So well done and thank you. Thank you, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This 
This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.